Well, hello, Christ Community Church. It is good to be with you tonight. On a night like this, when millions of people around the world are gathered to do exactly what we're doing, to remember the death of Jesus for us. Before I get too far, I want to say hello to two different groups of people. First are our guests and our visitors. Uh, every weekend we've got guests and visitors, but we know that on Good Friday and on Easter we've got a lot more than normal. And so if you've chosen to worship with us today, we are so glad that you are with us. Uh, we're glad that we can welcome you in. We hope that you find this to be uh, an inviting place, a place where if you're looking for a church family, you might call home one day. And if you're visiting from out of town, we're glad that you can join us tonight. I also want to say hello to the kids in the room. Uh, normally, our services are for sixth grade and up, but on special occasions like tonight, we've got our kindergartners through fifth graders here. And so if you're a kid, can I hear you, hear you yell? <laughs> yeah, I'm letting you yell. Okay. Um, I want to say uh, something special to you guys because this is great to have you and we don't have you here all the time. Uh, I just want to say that your church family loves you very much and we are really, really thankful you are part of this community because you know what we believe? We believe that God works even in kids, that he talks to kids, he teaches kids things, he uses kids to bless people and so we're so thankful that you're here and part of our church family. I got to teach in Kids World a couple of weeks ago, and I, I told the kids then that they're smarter than their parents, and I can prove it, because it takes about 10 minutes to tell the story in Kids World, and it takes longer than that here, which means the kids get it faster. So here's the deal, kids. If your parents or grandparents or older siblings don't understand what I'm saying, on the way home, you can explain it to them, okay? All right, let's pray and then jump into God's Word. God, we are so amazed that we are here celebrating this, the fact that you came to rescue us, that you gave your entire self, you gave your life, you gave everything so that we would belong to you. God, that is incredible love and we don't understand it. So God, we pray that as we open up your word that you would open up our hearts so that we can hear what you did and respond to it with faith and with love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Her grip wasn't strong enough to open up a bottle of shampoo or button her coat. She used to lead groups of people on week-long camping trips. They'd hike for hours a day out in the woods. But now, if she managed to get to class and back, it would wipe her out for the rest of the day. Everything she had ever tried, she succeeded at. Her, her professor saw her as a rising star in her field. They, they were talking about doctorates and preparing her for a long, influential career. She was a leader among leaders in campus organizations. She mentored younger students. She loved to play the piano. Uh, from early age, she used it as a way to clear her mind and connect with God, but these days, she hardly had the strength to get through one song. The, the, the pain and the weakness, it came on suddenly. Uh, they couldn't figure out the cause. It might have been an injury that set it off. It might have been a diet issue. It might have been an autoimmune disease. They just didn't know. Uh, but now, this ambitious, gifted young woman was sitting in my office, weeping. What if this is the rest of my life, she says. She had talked to doctors, she would tried alternative treatments, nothing, nothing had worked. And from everybody's perspective, this was her new normal. 
Goals were irrelevant. Plans for the future were on hold. You can't get through a grad program if you need two naps a day. Until everything seemed like it had been taken from her, she didn't realize just how much of herself she had invested in her abilities and her accomplishments. That's what had defined her. But now the question was, who am I if I can't achieve what everybody says I'm capable of? What if I never do anything significant in my life? What if my illness gets the final word about me? In some way or another, every one of us is asking that question. What gets the final word about me? Who or what gets to declare the verdict on my life? Each of our hearts is searching for an answer to that question, whether we realize it or not. I don't know if you've ever been in a group discussion, a meeting, you're trying to make a decision or, or, or work out a plan, and there, there's one person in that group that's doing a lot of talking. They're doing a lot of the back and forth of the discussion. But as you observe that person, you realize that every once in a while, they, they, they glance over to someone else in the conversation, and, and they're checking to see if what they're saying this person agrees with, or, or if the direction the conversation is going is uh, you know, kosher with this person. They keep glancing over that person at key moments, and pretty soon you realize that this person is actually the, the decision maker. They're the one who is actually in control of this conversation. Their voice is the loudest, even if they don't say anything at all, because they are the ones who get the final word. All throughout our life, we do and we say all sorts of things, but at key moments, our hearts, so to speak, glance over at certain things to say, how am I doing? Who am I? Where am I at? Something that gets the final word about us. Your heart might glance over at your accomplishments, the final word in your life is whether or not you've met your goals or whether you've done something worthwhile. Your goals might be anything. It might be a, a career goals or having a perfect family or a perfect body or some social cause. But whatever it is, your heart keeps looking that way to say, that, that list of accomplishments, what does it say about me? Maybe your heart glances over at your suffering, your pain. The, the final word in your life isn't a, something that you've done. It's something that's been done to you. A loss or an illness, a betrayal, painful words or actions from another person. And your heart keeps asking, who am I? What defines me? And your pain is the answer. That thing that happened to me is what gets the final word. Maybe your heart glances over at your guilt. That the final word in your life are your mistakes and the people that you hurt and the sins that you've committed. Your heart keeps glancing at your regrets to tell you what's most true about you. That you are a failure, a sinner. And that's all you'll ever be. What gets the final word in your life? It might be any of these things or something totally different. Our hearts are complex, but every single heart is looking to find out what's the final word about me. Here's where the trouble comes in. Whatever you look to for the final word about your life, it dominates you. If you look to your accomplishments, you get stuck riding the roller coaster. I heard one person describe it like, uh, you know those uh, inflatable Gumby men that are outside of the, you know, the car dealerships like doing this out there? You know what I'm talking about? He, he says, if you, if you invest in your accomplishments, then every time you're successful, you inflate. And every time you fail, you deflate. And you do this again and again throughout your life. That's what's going on inside. Uh, no accomplishment is ever going to be enough. You'll be driven for more, the next promotion, the better body, helping more people, and none of it will ever satisfy if your suffering gets the final word, you're always going to feel like a victim. 
It's always going to be the filter that you interpret everything through. And your life is going to be dominated by self-preservation or, or bitterness or whatever it is you use to numb the pain. If it's your guilt, you're always going to feel like you've fallen short. You, you, every suffering is going to feel like deserved punishment. You're always going to live in the shadow of your past. You, you'll feel like life is a debt that you can never keep up with. You can never pay off. Whatever gets the final word about you dominates you. And because of that, you'll never be free. You'll never find rest. So what do we do? Because we've got to look somewhere. What gets the final word in our life? If you've got a Bible, open up to the Gospel of John. This is one of the four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament. We're going to be in John chapter 19. And this passage describes the final moments of Jesus' life, right before he dies. Before this moment, the, the night before, Jesus was arrested by Roman soldiers. He, he was tried by Jewish religious leaders. They, they had twisted his words to make it sound like he was a revolutionary, like, like he was going to commit a terrorist attack on the temple in Jerusalem. The, the Roman governor who uh, tried him, he couldn't get any evidence for the claim, but when he saw the angry mob, he caved and he condemned Jesus to death. The soldiers took Jesus away and they mocked him. They tortured him. They nailed him to a cross. The entire world, the, the political powers and the religious authorities and the masses, they all conspired against him. Even his friends abandoned him. And all together, they declared their final words about Jesus. He's an imposter. He's dangerous. He's a criminal. From the outside perspective, Jesus' life looked like a failure. But then, Jesus utters his last words. And they turn out to be the final word on both his life and ours. Let's read in verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled... Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A, a jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. This is a truly incredible passage of scripture. So let's thank God for it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is finished. The last word John records of Jesus speaking in his book. I say the last word because in Greek, it's just one word. It's this word, tetelestai. Tetelestai. Say that with me. Tetelestai. A great British preacher, Charles Spurgeon, back in the 1800s, he said, this one Greek word has an ocean of meaning in a drop of language. Some people have said that tetelestai is a one-word summary of the gospel, of the good news. It is finished. Let me unpack it a little bit. What exactly was finished on the cross? A few things. At the most basic level, what was finished were the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. They were fulfilled. That's part of what it means that scripture had been fulfilled. Jesus fit the bill for the predicted king who was going to come and rescue the people. But it goes deeper than that. And this wasn't just about Jesus checking the boxes for the, the job description. What Jesus did is he entered in to certain experiences and went to the very end of three different things. These are the three things he finished. Humanity's purpose, humanity's pain, and humanity's payment. 
It wouldn't be a sermon without some alliteration, okay? Here's the first thing. Jesus fully accomplished humanity's purpose. In, in his life, Jesus did something no one ever had done. He obeyed God's law perfectly. All, all 613 commands in the Old Testament, he did them all. Uh, this is part of what it meant when, when it, it says everything had been finished in verse 28. Uh, Jesus did everything that God required and he did nothing that God had forbidden. Where Adam and Eve and you and me and everybody else had failed, Jesus succeeded. Uh, but it wasn't simply that he kept the letter of the law. I mean, you can keep the rules of a game and still play it poorly. What, what Jesus did is he lived a life worth living. He, he fulfilled the heart of the law. He lived a life of perfect love. He, he did what God called humanity to do. Uh, people often talk about how Jesus is fully God, but sometimes we don't talk enough about how he was fully human. Uh, people use the expression, you know, I, I'm only human, as a way of saying, you know, I've got mistakes, I'm flawed, of course I mess up. But when we say that Jesus was human, we're actually saying the exact opposite. You, you see, God created humanity to be a work of art, and Jesus was the first person to actually show the full beauty of God's masterpiece, what he, God intended humanity to actually be. He lived the life we were meant to live, a life of surrender to God, a, a life of self-giving love for other people. And on the cross, it was the ultimate expression of his love for God and love for other people. That's why he can shout this cry of victory, tetelestai, at the moment when it looked like he had just had the worst defeat. Here's where this becomes good news. Jesus did all of this as our representative. He did it on our behalf. And that means we get credit for what he accomplished. Think of it this way. It's, it's like he went out on the field and he scored the winning goal, but all of us who are still on the sidelines, sitting on the bench, injured, we get to share in the victory that he won. When you put your trust in Jesus, you're united with him and his record becomes yours. And what this means is that our accomplishments or lack of accomplishments no longer gets the final word about us. Jesus does. Here's the second thing Jesus finished. Jesus fully entered into humanity's pain. He fully entered into our pain. This is kind of the most obvious thing about Jesus' death. It was physically painful. He was beaten and whipped. Nails were driven into his arms and his feet. He hung suffocating on a cross for three hours. But it was more than physical. Jesus experienced humiliation and fear, betrayal and injustice. And on top of it all, he experienced the spiritual agony of being separated from God. There is no kind of pain that Jesus didn't experience in some way. Sometimes though, when we're thinking about what Jesus experienced on the cross, it's just, it's too big to get our heads around. And that's why I think the, the detail in verse 28 is kind of powerful. The, the torment is nearing its end and Jesus' strength is failing and he says, I am thirsty. It's, it's such a small thing, but you can connect to it. It's a real moment. The, the son of God has done everything that is needed. He's gone to the utter end of pain and now he's just exhausted from it all. He's tired, thirsty, worn out. What's interesting is that the passage says that he said this to fulfill scripture. Now you gotta do a little bit of digging to figure out what scripture was being fulfilled here. But in my Bible, there is a, a little note that has a cross-reference to Psalm 69. And look what it says in Psalm 69. It's a song that has these lyrics. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. 
They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. And when you read the rest of the Psalm, Psalm 69, you realize that this song is about an innocent victim who is suffering at the hands of injustice. And when Jesus cries out singing this song, he is identifying with people who have suffered in the world, people who have suffered the actions of other people, the effects of evil in the world. Sometimes when we're suffering, we feel like God is really distant, really aloof. When we're feeling pain, it feels like that's the last place God's going to be. And that's why our, our suffering can feel so definitive in our life. It can get the last word. But on the cross, God fully entered our pain. He, he drank the cup of suffering to the bottom. And so here's the thing. We, we don't know why God allows suffering sometimes in our life. But what we do know is God didn't exempt himself from suffering. God himself has suffered, and he's with us when we suffer. And what that means is our suffering can never have the final word. God gets that. Third thing, Jesus also fully paid humanity's payment. He fully paid our payment. Because of sin, every single one of us owes God a debt that we can never pay. God made human beings to rule over his world. He, he trusted each one of us with, with something that belonged to him. He entrusted us with those things so that we would uh, do what he wanted with those things, fulfill his purposes with them. So he gives us his resources. And what do we do? We use them for our selfish desires. He, he gives us gifts and talent, and what do we do? We use them to build ourselves up, to make ourselves look good. He trusts us with relationships, with the hearts of other people that he loves. And what do we do with that? We, we figure out all sorts of ways to hurt each other and dishonor each other and use each other. We take the things that God, belong to God and we squander them and we abuse them. It, it, it's like we're house sitters and, and God's the owner and he's coming back from a trip and he's finding his windows shattered and the walls knocked down and the kitchen's on fire and, and the damages are gonna cost us more than we can afford. You, you might not always feel it that way, but it's true. We owe a debt that we cannot pay. So in some sense, it makes sense that, that our guilt should get the last word about us. I mean, how could we ever pay that back? If you've been around Christ community for the last couple of months, you know that we just finished up a series in the Old Testament book of Leviticus. And one of the things that Leviticus talks a lot about are sacrifices. And this is what sacrifices were. Uh, they were symbolic ways for people to pay God back for the sins that they had committed, for the debt that they owed for their sin. That you gave something valuable, a piece of livestock or, 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 or uh, some sort of resource, and you gave it to God to compensate for your sin. One way to think of it is this, that the animal was paying the penalty that you owed instead of you. This was the system of taking care of sin throughout the Old Testament. Now, there's an interesting detail in verse 29 here in, in John 19. It says, when the people around the cross gave Jesus this drink, it says they took a stalk of hyssop and lifted it to Jesus's lips. Now, that's just kind of a weird detail, and normally you would probably just read over that. But that word kind of struck me because I was like, what, what's the deal with hyssop? And I remembered as we had been reading the book of Leviticus, that word came up a few times and it was weird enough that I remembered it. So I, I decided to do a search. I went online, I, I searched for the word hiss, hyssop in the Bible and I found all the places that it came up. And what was interesting is it only comes up when it's talking about sacrifices. There were sacrifices where what they would do with the blood of the animal is they would take these branches of hyssop and they would dip it in and they would sprinkle it on something that needed to be cleansed. And there's one really important time when it comes up that's a famous moment in the Bible, and it comes up at the Passover. 
You might remember a few weeks ago, Pastor Jim uh, talked about all the different festivals in the Old Testament. One of them is Passover. And what happens at Passover is a lamb was killed. And the very first time uh, when the lamb was killed, they took the blood of the lamb and they spread it over the doorposts of the houses. This was when God was rescuing the people from the land of Egypt. And he said, the plague of death is gonna come through and punish people for their sins. But anybody who has that blood around the doorpost, their home will be spared. The lamb dies instead of the people. You know what holiday Jesus died on? Passover. And so this detail about hyssop isn't random. Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's the sacrifice for sin. His blood saved us from paying the penalty that we owe, the penalty of death. Now here's the interesting thing about sacrifices in the Bible. Even though God tells people to give sacrifices, several times he says, you know what? These sacrifices are good, but they're not enough. They don't actually make up for sin. They're they're symbols that God honored, but they didn't actually pay the price. In a sense, uh, using a sacrifice was like paying for your sins on a credit card. God let the transaction go through. He gave you the forgiveness, uh, but the debt was still there. It just sort of built up over time. And eventually, over the years, someone was going to have to pay that debt off. Back in the 1800s, archaeologists started doing a lot of digging in Egypt. And they found all sorts of amazing things. They found King Tut's tomb and the Rosetta Stone and some of these real famous things. But they also found some sort of not-so-famous things. They found a bunch of pieces of papyrus buried in the sand. Actually, hundreds of thousands of little pieces of paper that, because they got buried, got preserved for thousands of years. And what was interesting about them was these weren't great works of literature. They weren't important government documents. These were just the ordinary, everyday sorts of papers that got used in businesses and different organizations. And so they would dig up these papers and they'd realize this is a a list of supplies that someone needed, or this is a receipt for something, or this is a bill for something. And they kept finding these receipts and these bills that had this Greek word written across it. You know what the Greek word was? Tetelestai. It is finished. It is finished. The bill is settled. It's paid in full. So this is what Jesus is doing when he's on the cross. He's paying off the credit card bill. All that debt that we owed God for our sin, all the debt that no sacrifice could pay for, all the debt that hangs over your head and over mine, it's gone. If we have trusted in Jesus, it is gone. And that means our guilt no longer gets the final word about us because the cross gets the final word. This is the reason why we call the gospel good news and not good advice. Imagine with me that you are living in a a medieval kingdom, a city in a medieval kingdom. I spend a lot of time imagining that I live in a medieval kingdom. And you are living in this city and in this kingdom, uh, there has been an enemy that has attacked. And for years, your kingdom has been at war with this enemy. And for years, the battles have raged. One day, you and everybody else in the city, you're, you're, you're hanging out, and someone, a watchman on the wall is looking over the horizon, and they see a rider coming over the hill, going as fast as he can, and he's carrying the banner of the king. The, the, the watchman opens the gates and lets the, the guy in, and, and he says, I've got a message, I've got a message, it's urgent, it's from the king. So the entire city gathers around to hear what this guy has to say. What he says is this, the enemy is on the way. The army is marching towards our city. They'll be here in a day. We have no time to lose. The king orders us to prepare for battle. What does the city do? 
We go into a flurry of activity. We, we, we bolt the doors and we hide the children away in safety and we check the supplies and we man the walls and we get the archers ready and we prepare and we prepare and we prepare. And we do everything that we can and no matter what we do, no matter how prepared we are, we're still anxious. We don't know what's gonna happen when the army arrives, how this is all gonna go down. It's uncertain. For a lot of people, that's what they think the message of Christianity is. It's good advice to prepare for something that's coming, but you can't be certain if you've done enough. You keep the rules, you do the rituals, you support the causes, and if you do enough, maybe you'll be ready for death. Maybe you'll be ready for judgment, but you never know. But think about it this way. What if that rider comes over the hill and he opens the gate and everybody gathers around to hear the message? He says, I have an urgent message from the king. Yesterday, the king attacked the enemy camp. And it was a long and difficult battle. But he has won. The war is over. It is finished. What do we do? The city goes into a flurry of activity. But this time, we get out the banners and we get out the instruments and the band starts to play a song. And we prepare for the parade and we start the feast and we, we get ready because we are celebrating. Things are good. We go to every home and we tell everybody, did you hear the news? The king has won. The war is over. It is finished. And there might be some enemy soldiers here and there that we've got to round up, but we're at peace now. There's nothing more to worry about. This is the message of Christianity. It's the good announcement that the war is over. It's not advice to get you ready for the battle. It's the announcement that the victory has already been won. The cross has the final word. Let, let me show you something cool. Look at verse 31. It says this, it says, now it was the day of preparation for Passover and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Now this detail might not be super important. It's one of those things that you say, well, maybe this just tells us, you know, what day of the week Jesus died on. You know, he, he died on Friday, which is the day before the Jewish Sabbath, which is Saturday. So, you know, we know to celebrate this on Friday. So, you know, no big deal. But biblical scholars have pointed out for a long time that something really special is going on in the book of John. Maybe some of you know how the entire Bible starts. Maybe some of you kids actually know what the very first words of the Bible. Anybody know them? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, here's what's interesting about the book of John. The very first words in the book of John are this. In the beginning was the word, and the word is a title for Jesus. So when John wrote his book, he wanted us to be thinking about the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, where God creates the world. He's talking about in the beginning. And as he goes through his story, he actually kind of drops clues to keep that in mind as you're going along. Because just like Genesis 1, Genesis 1 goes through six days of creation. It says, on the next day, God did this. On the next day, God did this. So as John's telling his story, he says, on the next day, Jesus did this. On the next day, Jesus did this. On the next day. And so it feels a lot like Genesis. And then he kind of trails off on the next day thing, and he picks it up right here in chapter 19 when he says, and on the next day was a special Sabbath. Maybe you remember, if you've read Genesis 1 and 2, how that first week of creation ends. God does all of his work, and then he has a special Sabbath, a day of rest. When God is done making the world, what he does is he says, it is finished, and he rests. So when Jesus is done saving the world, he cries out, it is finished, and he rests. It's a special Sabbath. Let me add one more cool thing to this. I know it gets a little bit into Easter, but I, I think this is interesting. 
When Jesus is raised from the dead, he is raised from the dead on a Sunday, on the first day of the week. And Jesus's tomb is actually located in a garden. So when Jesus comes out of the tomb, the very first person to see him, Mary Magdalene says, hey, are you the gardener? Which sounds a lot like Genesis 2, where Adam, the very first human being, is in the garden and God says, keep the garden, protect it, take care of it. Jesus is the new Adam. On the cross, he completed the work of the old creation. And in the resurrection, he ushers in the new creation. Let me make a connection to you and me. It's actually really profound. It's really liberating. Here's what it means. If the cross has the final word, we can rest. If the cross has the final word, we can rest. Jesus has done all that was needed. He completed the work to tell us die. And so that means you don't have to prove your worth through your accomplishments. You don't have to ride that roller coaster anymore because your successes add nothing to what Jesus did. And your failures don't threaten it. You can rest. You're going to be okay. Your suffering doesn't have to define you either because your loss is not final. Your story doesn't end with your illness or your death. God is present in your pain and he's bringing new life on the other side of it. You can rest. There is no longer any debt or guilt hanging over your head. You don't have to pay it back. You don't have to try to make up for it. Because of what Jesus did, God does not condemn you any longer. You can rest. Sometimes people hear this and they say, well, what what does that mean? If Jesus paid it all, does that mean I can just do whatever I want? And the answer to that question is both no and yes. No, you can't do whatever you want because doing whatever you want is not actually freedom. And it certainly isn't restful. Doing what you want is often slavery to whatever it is you look to for that final word in your life. Sin at its root is pursuing something that you think is going to give you what you need, whether it's, you know, sex or money or alcohol or overworking or impressing others or looking perfect or whatever. Whatever you pursue, it starts to dominate you. It demands more and more and gives less and less. And so it's not actually freedom to do whatever you want. But on the other hand, in a different sense, if the cross has the final word in your life, if you actually believe that, you can do whatever you want. But here's the key thing. If you actually believe the cross has the final word, then what you want starts to change really dramatically. If Jesus has met your needs on the cross, you don't have to look to all those other things to meet your needs. If Jesus has given all that he has, bearing your pain and paying your debt, aren't you going to love him back? Aren't you going to want to pursue him and do the things that please him? If Jesus suffered for you, aren't you going to trust him that whatever he asks you to do is actually for your best? That he's not going to go through all of that himself and pay all of that and then just ask you to do something that's going to rob you of life and ultimate joy. If the cross has the final word, your desires change. And so in a sense, you can't actually do what you want because now you want what you should want. On the cross, Jesus declared that the debt was paid, the war was over, he had done it all. There's nothing that we need to add to it. But what we do need to do is receive it. To have that experience of rest, we've got to surrender to Jesus and say, I want you to have the final word in my life. Some of you are here and you've never done that before. Maybe you've heard the story. Maybe it just hasn't clicked before now. Maybe you've been holding out for some reason. But maybe today's the day. If you've never done that, if you've never put your trust in Jesus, I want to help you do that tonight. There's no magic way to do this. 
but it does start by simply talking to God and asking him to rescue you. For a lot of people, though, they don't know how to put this into words. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray a prayer out loud. Uh, It's a simple prayer. You can just follow along quietly in your heart and kind of say it in your own words in your mind. It's going to follow a simple pattern. It goes, I'm sorry, thank you, and please. So if that's you, pray with me so that the cross would have the final word in our lives. Dear God, I want to say I'm sorry. I'm sorry for all the ways that I've run away from you. I'm sorry for all the ways I've done what's wrong and let other things have the final word in my life. I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness. God, I also want to say thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that you came to earth to live the life that I should have and die the death that I deserve. Thank you that you paid my debt in full and there's nothing left for me to pay. Thank you that you didn't stay dead, but you rose to bring eternal life. God, I also want to say, please, please forgive my sin. Please be my rescuer, my ruler. I surrender to you, God. Please make me part of your family and fill me with your presence so that I can be transformed. Please give me eternal life in your kingdom. God, I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.